Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to former Wallaby and director and founder of Gainline Analytics, Ben Darwin. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So today's guest is a little bit um, out of left field and I'm really glad that it did come out of left field and I must thank Charlie Higgins at Leinster for making another introduction to another great guest. So I believe that Charlie and Ben uh, work together uh, over in Australia and Ben's background is obviously he's a former player but he's also a coach um, and he's also set up a business called Gainline Analytics. So a really diverse, as you can imagine, a really diverse uh, episode with lots of things that we cover. So first off, we're gonna, we, we chat about how Ben's playing career ended. And then we talk about uh, his coaching career and a few questions that were posed or he posed to himself during that time as a coach. And then what Gainline Analytics actually is and what he's doing for what he's doing for clubs and coaches and the kind of commonalities that he's seen in clubs with regards to cohesion, with regards to culture, um, and what makes um, organizations win consistently um, and sometimes lose consistently. So a really interesting, diverse chat with Ben um, and hopefully one you'll really enjoy. You know, as a young player when I was at the Brumbies, um, I was told to change how I behaved or I could leave. Now that was because the Brumbies had very, very uh, high level of cohesion, therefore high levels of normative behaviours. This is how we do business down here. If you're not going to adapt to that, then you can, you can leave. But just before we do get into the chat with Ben, I want to say a huge thanks to Vald Performance and Forstex for sponsoring this episode today. So Vald Performance are the makers of the Nordboard, Groin Bar and Human Track. I'm sure everyone out there has heard of the first two products, um, but maybe not the third one. So it's a motion capture system that encompasses the Xbox Connect and four IMUs that are worn on both wrists and both ankles. So a so recently validated against Vicon with really positive outcomes. So if you are interested in learning a little bit more about Human Track, uh, what it's about, who's currently using it, etc., head over to valdperformance.com uh, and there's plenty of information on there with regards to all the three products. Also, big thanks to Forstex. Uh, and if you are interested in a force plate uh, hardware and software solution, make sure you check out Forstex at forstex.com. But also have a little listen to episode 139 of the podcast so that's strengthofscience.com forward slash 139 and on there is an episode with dr daniel cohen who is one of the co-founders of forstex and gives a real great overview of uh, jump monitoring and certainly not a sales pitch for forstex um, but goes into some really uh, high quality detail with regards to metrics, with regards to protocols, etc. So you can find them uh, forstex.com and on Twitter at forstex. So I hope you enjoy the chat with Ben. Any feedback is welcome, and I will speak to you soon. 
Ben Darwin, welcome to the Pace Performance Podcast. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for your coming. Welcome. No, that's fine, mate. Thank you for coming on. So when you get when sorry when I get a message from Charlie Higgins at Leinster saying you've got to speak to this guy, uh, ex Wallaby, into his analytics, it's definitely a call that has to be made. So thank you for giving up your time. Anyway, anyone that doesn't know who you are, do you just want to give us a little bit of a background on yourself? Bit of a yes. playing career, maybe. Yeah. So first things first with Charlie. Uh, he was he was one of my first uh, guys that I hired. So Charlie's always been very nice to me. Um, but uh, yeah, so my background was I played uh, rugby for the Brumbies and for the Wallabies. Uh, I played it for a quite short period of time uh, between say '98 and '03. Uh, then I had a spinal injury in the World Cup semi final against the All Blacks, um, and so I had to retire at that point. Uh, couldn't play anymore, and I was twenty. I think it was 26, 27. Uh, I then jumped into coaching and I was coached in a number of different places. And then I became a data analyst around the 2008 uh, sort of global financial crisis. Um, just to add another uh, string to my bow um, while I was working in Japan. And, uh, and so I've worked in a number of like expansion franchises like the Force and the Rebels and then coaching in Japan a number of occasions. Uh, and then I, I became my, my full-time job or my own business, which is Gameline Analytics, started in 2013. So talk to us a little bit about the, first of the finishing of playing, how that how you dealt with that, and then the kind of transition into, well, away from playing, into yeah. coaching? Yeah, so I think, you know, to, when I, whenever I explain to people what I do, I always go through my playing experiences. And I think that the... Um, the thing that I had as a player, I was very, very lucky, was I played in teams that people talked about they punched above their weight. Uh, I don't know if you've kind of um, uh, heard that term before, but it's basically yeah, yeah, teams, yeah. Yeah, teams that people feel do better than they should. Um, and then I actually, when I went into coaching, I was coaching teams that were punching below their weight. And I always <laughs> wondered, I always wondered, was that me? Was that something else? Um, and then the more I coached, the more I started to realize that there was stuff that was beyond my control. So, for example, the Rebels and the um, and the the Force, you know, we were expansion teams. We got in some pretty good talent, uh, but we didn't get the wins that the talent would would say. And people would say, well, on paper, it's a great team, but it's not quite being as effective as we hoped. And certainly in conversations over the coaches, you know, they were like, we think we can get 12 wins or we can come – you know, I think at one stage they're talking about coming second in the pool. And I said, my experience doesn't say that's going to be the case. Um, but I think that's hard because coaches, you know, coaches want to back themselves. People want to back themselves. Players want to back themselves. And then, um, and then, uh, I also went to coach in Japan and then the coach, the teams that I coached went undefeated. And then I'd coach a high school team and it would go well or I'd coach a club and it would go, you know, quite well. And, um, and I particularly, I was part of a team. When I played, that I very distinctly remember, which was uh, Northern Suburbs in uh, in the Sydney competition, and we basically assembled a team to win the comp, and the club spent, you know, quite a lot of resources on bringing this group together, and we lost twelve of our first thirteen games, I think, for memory. But then we came home with a wet sail and made the grand final. We lost the grand final, but we came. I think we won like eleven of the next twelve or something. And I never really understood what had changed because nothing had basically changed that much as a group. We just ended up playing together. 
Um, and then people threw a lot of attributes at it, like, oh, they've, you know, they've finally switched on, they've finally got some spirit. And I'm like, that doesn't make sense. We had that from the start, you know. Um, and so I've always wondered about these notions. And when I first started my company, we didn't, we weren't really working along these lines. We actually were trying to sell uh, contract data to different clubs around the world. And we had this database of about 15,000 players, and we were just trying to figure out who's a contract when. So I've got these guys sitting in Romania basically reading press releases of rugby league and rugby union. Uh, and it's funny, if you read enough press releases, they all sound exactly the same. Um, all the same statements, you know, I'm really excited about joining the club or, you know, this guy's going to be a great influence on the young players or, you know, it's all the same stuff. And um, and then eventually, though, I, we were tracking a lot of movements of players and one of the things we found was is that the market wasn't was was not responding to talent acquisition in the way that you think the market would traditionally do so. In other words, if you get great talent, you get better, and if you don't get access to it, you got worse. In fact, we were finding it to be the total opposite of that. Is that clubs who were getting access to talent were not improving. In fact, they were getting worse, and the clubs who were getting um, uh, who, who were missing their window and not getting the players and had to keep the ones they wanted were actually improving. So I wanted to understand that dynamic, and so that's how this, the current work of the company was born. And I, and basically, I've researched that, and I've been researching that now for four, four and a half years. So is it just in rugby, or is this in other sports as well? So it started off in rugby union, rugby league, but when I first started to, I first started to look into this work of this guy Grossberg, who wrote Chasing Stars, and he was looking at the portability of talent into stockbroking firms. So it wasn't wasn't even you know, <laughs> wasn't even related to what I was looking at, but it, it was the same stuff and he was finding that people were underperforming for the first couple of years and he wanted to understand that dynamic. And so I applied some of his research, some other research into military. Um, my mum also is that she has a master's in ancient history and archaeology, so we talked a lot about military history. We started looking at things like airline crews. We started looking at um, NASA crews. And all this research, all this academic research, and just just absorbed all these books on the issue and said, okay, why don't we try applying this to sports? So we went back uh, 30 years in nine different sports and just looked at thousands and thousands of seasons. And we basically looked at two ideas. One is what happens when you try to buy a title by bringing in as many players with talent as you possibly find? And what happens if you can't do that and you decide to, uh, you know, recruit from within? And so we looked at the ramifications of both of those decisions over the long term. What's the impact over the long term for organizations? Um, and we looked at it across many different industries um, and many different sports. And then we came up with these sort of set of ideas, a sort of tenets around cohesion analytics. And, and, it, and, it, and it, what it ends up becoming is you understand that it's always gray. It's not like Nobody decides to totally go down that path. That's actually quite rare. I mean, Salford City Reds probably, probably one of the classic examples, uh, which is a rugby league team in Northern England um, under Marwin. But then he's learned himself. He's learned through that experience and he's changed his philosophy and they've improved much more. Um, and then, and then you know, and other clubs don't always go down the pure path of academy. You know, even Sir Alex Ferguson, he's still at a policy of, okay, I'm going to add players, but I'm not going to add more than one player per year over the age of 27. So, you know, everybody is, is in the middle, but it's just how far they go. And I think what was probably the most interesting part of the work was Grossberg's work was really about how talent, sorry, that's my son in the background screaming. 
Um, that's fine, mate. That's fine. <laughs> he's, he's too. Um, you know, Grossberg's work was really about saying, you know, how does talent perform once it changes? What I really am interested in is how does talent change organisations? How does the importation of talent affect organisations, short-term, long-term? Um, what are the ramifications of those decisions? And what are the ramifications for performance? You know, um, if, if you, if you bring in a, if you bring in the best people and the best coach, what happens? And then what happens not only now, what happens tomorrow? What happens in five, 10 years time for clubs? So how is that, how is that now a business? What are you <clears throat> offering to people? What, what, what we chatted about before was what are people coming, what problems are people coming to you with thinking that you can solve them? What's really, what's been really interesting for us is, is that we've always struggled with what we call clubs in the middle. So if a club comes to you, club comes to us, they're generally at the top of their game or the bottom of their game and they want to understand why. If they're at the top, they want to understand what is it that's made us great and how do we hold on to it. And if they're at the bottom, they want to understand what went wrong. And they've tried everything else and, you know, they've tried buying titles, they've tried you know, they've theoretically tried to, to go down the, the cohesive path of the academy process. Um, but a lot of the times they haven't really understood what the ramifications are. Um, and it, what's, what's interesting is if a coach approaches us, it's generally too late. We call it the game line curse is that basically if a coach comes to us, he's going to be fired within a month. And I think that's happened now 14, 15 times because <laughs> basically they've lost they've lost the ability to convince the club that they're on the right path and they want to understand what's gone wrong. And, um, and, but generally the problem is at this point in time, they don't have permission to do so. So generally, you know, if you're going to create success in the long term, you have to have permission to do it. And so we try to really approach the club from the top down from the ownership or the board and say, okay, if you want to, if you want to do this properly, here is the path that the really successful organizations have taken. But if a coach is trying to do it without permission, you know, part of it is generally you do have to sometimes take a bit of a step back in the way you're doing things. You know, um, you know, you look at the way Tottenham does things now, it didn't come straight away. It took time to develop, it took time to, to build the right systems and put them in place. And a lot of people don't have that level of patience. So what we're trying to do is to explain to people, um, you know, you can, you can win tomorrow, but you can destroy yourselves in the long term if you don't do it properly. But if you want to do things, in the right way, there is a way of going about it, and there's a way of understanding it, and there's a, and there's algorithms attached to it in a way, or to descriptive algorithms um, that can sort of show you how that's going to work out. And so, one of the biggest things for us is managing expectations, and also showing um, why success for certain clubs is so prevalent, and why they can actually be far more successful than than they are on paper in terms of the talent that they have. So the one of the simple models we talk about is skill times cohesion equals capacity. Um, and basically it means that if, if you don't, if, if you have a group of players that are of average uh, ability, if they have an extraordinary level of understanding between each other, and that's part of what we're trying to map, is trying to map understanding, then they will perform above expectations. If you have an extraordinary amount of talent, but you have terrible understanding, you're going to perform below expectations. And what we try to do is to understand what the drivers of that understanding are and also what the ramifications of bringing people in are. So if you bring in a player or a CEO to an organization who comes in and says, this is how I did it at the last organization, 
and you allow that person to change what you're doing, then everyone else is going to underperform because they're doing things they're not used to. And therefore, you've now got this lens of understanding is that we're trying to get people to do things they're not used to. So therefore, they're going to go backwards in performance, both individually and collectively. And therefore, we need to have patience for that. Whereas a lot of times you don't have that patience. And, and a lot of boards don't have patience for, for coaches either. So if you're going to go into a club brought in by the club itself or, the, or a coach, how are you? what's the first thing you do? How are you quantifying what's already there so you know what to change or what not to change? So one of the things we need to be able to understand is context. So the context is what is the competition you're a part of and how does that sit? Because if, if you've got two values, one is skill, one is understanding, you're going to perform to a certain level, but it's only going to be relevant within the context of the competition you're in. So if we took, say, the AFL, for example, the AFL is the most cohesive competition in the world. Um, it's, it's ridiculously well put together, and a lot of it has to do with the restraint of athletes to be able to trade. And we said if, you know, the AFL was in Europe, it would be illegal because it's just so that, you know, players have to spend their first five or six years at their own club unless the club releases them, and then they can go to free trade when they're like 25 years of age or 24 years of age. Oh, okay. so, didn't um, know that. Yeah, so so we've got this number called TWI. TWI is the it's this sort of philosophy of the club. It's a very it's a very sort of broad number, but generally the highest TWI team wins the comp. But there's other numbers we use which are far more match specific. So the AFL averages, I think, sixty seven percent TWI. The EPL, on the other hand, would average like twenty percent, or the Championship would be, uh, you know, lo- low teens, high teens. So. So, so, so um, again, so what's, what's TWI mean? TWI basically is the level of fluidity of the marketplace generally of the whole competition. And if it's, but if it's, if you're looking at an individual club, you're basically saying this is a high TWI club. In other words, it's a, a high TWI is a high uh, academy based club or internally based club. So there's all sorts of different okay. trades you can make. But if you've got a club which is just totally fluid, uh, like we talked about Salford City Reds, I think when, when Marwin took over, they went from 25% TWI to 9%. Um, you look at, uh, Bristol in the, um, uh, uh, they're now in the second division, are they in English rugby? Their, their numbers at the start of this year, extraordinarily low. Um, and generally that'll, and, and so a, a club that's good in rugby, for example, would be Exeter, Leinster, Munster. Um, is the, the clubs who, who have that greater philosophy around um, uh, building f- over the long term. So when we, uh, when we start to look at a club for the first time, we say, okay, here has been your TWI for the last 30 years and here has been the other teams within the context of the competition. So one thing to understand with the EPL is it's been going down. It's going down over the last 25 years. You don't have clubs like Manchester United anymore. Man United are not Man United. They're now a different version of themselves. Um, and so once you understand that context, you can say, okay, here is where you sit and here is why you are where you are. Because generally, results don't go beyond um, expectations. You know, we can't find a single coach in the world that can overcome cohesion. Um, you can take the best guy in the world and you put him at an uncohesive club and he's going to underperform for a period of time. If you look at Man City when Pep Guardiola arrived, you know he comes from Bayern. He's the he's the he's the answer. But it took time. It took time for him to be able to build what he needed to be able to get a level of cohesion within the club for the club to then be able to start to perform to its potential. 
And so um, it's it's it, it always takes far longer than people think in performances. You know, one of the really interesting pieces of data was it takes the average player three years when they change when they change clubs to hit their peak again. But some players never do. You know, it's very position specific. It's very very um, you know organizational specific. So uh, once the organization understands the context, then we say, okay, how do we grow TWI? How do we improve it for you? Uh, what are the positions in which it's most important? What is where is it least important? What, what positions can you just import talent really easily? So, if you look at if you look at trading between clubs or trading between codes, wingers who go from league to union transfer far more easily than centres. It's because it's because wingers is just you know you're on the end of a chain. It's skill based. Uh, you don't require interactions as heavily. Whereas say centres is really tough. Um, you know, and, and the history of, of centres going across codes um, has been littered with um, with difficulty for people and not enough time um, for those guys. So uh, the the key for us then is once they start to understand expectations, they can start to say, okay, how do we build this over time? And then what type of changes do we want to make? What are the type of changes that we shouldn't make? And then how do we transform ourselves, hopefully, into a high cohesion competition uh, sorry, high cohesion team within the context of competition, and what does that look like? And I, I think one of the really interesting areas of our research has been the impact of cohesion on skill acquisition. And so the the basic, uh, the easy thing to think about this is if you keep chopping and changing your coaches and your players and your system, it's really hard for people to improve because they're spending their entire time adapting. Whereas if you're not spending your entire time adapting, what are you doing? You spend your entire time getting better. And so there are some clubs that just produce talent all the time, and there are other clubs that just that never seem to produce talent in any form, but they are always keen to buy it. And that has a set of uh, that has a set of ramifications over time. So when you say cohesion or cohesive team, what what do you mean? What's what's your definition, and how do you quantify it? So the, the biggest, the easiest way for us to measure cohesion is, or talk about cohesion is saying cohesion is understanding. So there are things that affect cohesion. So if I, if I come from another team, I have a way of doing business. I have a, I have a, I have a skill set in a position. I have a skill, I have an understanding of a, of a program or a set of tactics that I used previously. I have skills that are, that are attributed to that. And so when I come across, you know, one or two things are going to happen. One is I'm going to try to adapt to the new one that I'm in. And if I do that, it's going to take time. There's a very big difference between, you know, knowing something and then being able to do it. And what we find is under duress, people go back to their old habits. Um, you, so you place people under pressure and, and you know, when you end up, you know, functioning just on the subconscious and a really big, you know, uh, dealing with complexity under pressure, that people go back to what they know, they go back to what they've understood. So I'll tend to go back to my previous habits from the previous organization, even though I'm trying my best, um, and it gets very uh, stressful for people. So there's the, if we're measuring that understanding, we know that somebody is going to take quite a long period of time to be able to get to the point where under pressure they actually do what the club needs them to do rather than the habits they've had, and that takes time to change. So... That is a level of misunderstanding, whether it be from the individual or for the for the team as a collective. And then also, if you bring in a, a rookie, 
you know, um, you know, that player will tend to learn things faster because they don't have any habits laid down. So we then look at how long does it take a, a rookie player in certain positions to be able to, to learn the system, to learn the roles, and also to be able to learn, you know, from each other. There's, there's some great interviews with the guys who are at, um, say, Melbourne Storm, Cameron Smith, Cooper Cronk, uh, Billy Slater, you know, t- talking about, because they played together since they were 19, that they don't need to say anything on the field because they know that, you know, when Cameron Smith steps off his left foot, Cooper Cronk knows he has to take the outside line to hit the third defender and Billy Slater's going to run the unders line. And, you know, they've done it so many times together and it's extre- extremely simple. So that's a level of physical and mental understanding they have with each other where they don't have to say certain things. There's a, there's the shortcuts. Whereas if you just throw a group of people together, they don't have that. And so everything slows down and they'll, 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 they can't take the shortcuts. They have to learn things. They can't have complexity. So, um, we're trying to measure what are the contributing factors towards that level of understanding. And how does that manifest itself on the field? And the main way it does is defense. Basically, high cohesion teams, high understanding teams can defend extraordinarily well. Um, it depends on the makeup of the sport. So, for example, AFL is you score goals through teamwork, whereas, say, with football, you score goals sometimes through individual winners. Um, but there's, there's different extents to all of that. So, um, I think if you look at, uh, you know, if you look at the game between Germany and Brazil in 2014 World Cup, that 7-2 or 7-1 win, you know, that was... Oh, a, I had a hammer in, yeah. yeah that was a, the, the simplicity with which Germany scored their goals, you know, through teamwork, I think only the seventh goal really was some individual brilliance. The rest were very simple. You had people in Brazil who were out of position um, uh, because I think they lost... lost the... Uh, I'm going to forget his name, the Paris Saint-Germain player... Um, just like with, with a couple of days to go, so you had people who were out of position. All the defenders did not know where to go, and they so they just kept following the ball. And so the Germans were just like literally treating them with disdain. Um, and you know the thing to understand is that the, the Brazilian team on paper was probably more valuable than the German team on paper. But the understanding between the German players was extraordinary. And this is not anyone's fault. This is not the coach's fault. This is systematic. It's a systematic reflection of Brazilian football. And the drivers, you know, the economic drivers over the past, you know, 25 years. Um, and so when you get these type of results, from our perspective, they're quite, you know, they're, they're a little bit more predictable than like might think. Uh, another example of this is like um, when uh, when <clears throat> the South Africa beat Japan in the Rugby World Cup, the market said it's impossible, it can never happen because history had said it that way. But the problem is history was changing the way the rugby World Cup was set up was different. The way Japanese rugby was different and the way South African rugby was set up was now different. And so therefore the outcome was going to be different. And, um, and it was definitely a, a notion of skill versus cohesion because individually the South African players were, were far better, far more physical. But the Japanese team, because of several, you know, changes of input, were able to be competitive and give themselves a shot at winning. So it's going to be a very quick break in the chat with Ben. So up in part two, we talk more about cohesion uh, and culture and the commonalities amongst the, the teams and organizations that, uh, that Ben's worked in, as well as finishing off with a couple of books that have influenced Ben across his certainly varied uh, and diverse career. 
But just before we do get into the uh, second part with Ben, just want to say a big thanks to Fatigue Science for sponsoring this episode today. So Fatigue Science provide a service that is more than just uh, giving someone a sleep tracker in the, in the form of hardware and just kind of letting them crack on. What makes Fatigue Science so unique is their US Air Force developed software, which allows uh, them to, to simulate game time fatigue um, based on uh, travel times, based on um, time zone changes, flight times, etc., etc. And they can actually plan and predict what state the players are going to be in in terms of um, the impact that their sleep is going to have on them. So they can work with you uh, or the uh, client, a team, an organization to optimize that schedule so when game time comes around, things have been put in place on the back end. So hopefully the performances come on the front end in the, in the form of performance. So really exciting service that is offered uh, by Fatigue Science. So if you are interested in getting to know a little bit more about them, uh, follow them on Twitter at Fatigue Science and also visit their website at fatiguescience.com. So over to part two with Ben. Hope you enjoy and I'll speak to you soon. So I just want to move back to what you said at the start about your kind of coaching career and, and moving around different places when certain things happened that were the opposite that what you thought were going to happen and, and potentially measuring the, measuring the impact of what coaches are actually doing and delivering. And this kind of brings it back along the lines of the strength kind of support staff, strength and conditioning coach, sports science, performance analysts. What are you doing um, to, to enable them guys to actually measure the impact and their um, their impact on the, on the whole system rather than just their individual job? Is that, is that achievable? Is that doable? Yeah, it's, it's, Obviously, the area we're looking at is quite different, but the biggest thing we find is the ability to keep people on the field has an extraordinary impact. And so if I was to say to clubs, where do you invest your time? I wouldn't say go and buy you know, the absolute latest um, uh, uh, technology, but what I would do is invest in medical, invest in the ability to keep people on the field. So when I talk about technology, I'm not, I'm not saying like, you know, you don't need the greatest scrum machine in the world. But what you do need is you do need things that are going to help to keep people on the field as much as you can. And the other part is list management. Because obviously, you know, the cl clubs need to make sure their list management and their holistic approach to how they recruit people is, is the most important part. But um, I, I think one of the difficulties is, is that when a, when a team's doing really, really well, a lot of people will try to pin their success on something they changed or didn't change or a staff member. You know, and the classic is, um, you know, you know, Leicester City starts winning, and all of a sudden, everybody who's involved in Leicester City, from a uh, from an analytics perspective to a you know to a sports science perspective, will say, this is the reason. It's cryo chambers, or it's beetroot juice, or it's this form of data analysis. And what I always say is, you know, a lot of people go to different clubs, and they say, well, let's go and look at let's go and look at the clubs that are winning. Let's go and look at the stuff that they're, they're doing. What you should also do is go to all the clubs and look at the clubs that are losing and see what they're doing. And a lot of time it's the same. They're using the same facilities, using the same staff, using the same type of things and, um, you know, from a sports science and analytics perspective. And so you need to say, okay, well, maybe that stuff is making a difference in some areas, but maybe it's not making as much of a difference as we thought. 
And so what we try to do is try to remove all of the things that, that may or may not be making a difference. And I, and I think, you know, one of the really cool examples of this was, say, um, if you look at the Olympics, when Fiji beat Great Britain in the final, um, you know, if you, if you ever look at the videos of the stuff that Fiji were doing for training, which was basically, you know, running up hills and lifting logs, you know, you've, yeah, there's certain, there's certain parts to the way that club was set up where they simply did not have any resources. I know Ben Ryan, I think, went, went unpaid for like six months at one stage. Um, this is the sevens. Yeah, it's the sevens. But, you know, the, the, yeah. the team itself, yeah. the numbers as far as we could see them were, for cohesion were just off the charts. And, but, you know, they played Great Britain in the final who had, for, for want of nothing, they had all the managers, they had all, I'm sure, all the GPS, all the other stuff. But the problem was is they were trying to bring a group of people together late in the piece from four different organizations. So from a, from a skill perspective, if we treat both as the same, if we say the Great Britain players were just as good as the Fiji players, what was the difference between the two? Well, one is Fiji did not have the facilities that the Great Britain team did. But yet Great Britain was suffering for trying to bring a group of people together, and they did extraordinarily well to make the final. They did the most amazing job. Um, to, to even get there. But in the final, Fiji put 40 on them, or, you know, 30, 30 points. And that for me was, was seeing the difference. Is there some parts that make all the difference in the world, but some parts that make no difference? The hard part for us is trying to measure that. Um, another example of this is that when Iceland beat England, they were 260% more cohesive than England tender. Now, if you simply look at the resources that both of those organizations had from a playing perspective and from a off-field perspective, they were pretty extraordinary uh, in terms of what England had. And yet, on the field, on the day, that didn't necessarily produce the results. And so one of the things for us with clubs is, you know, where do you invest your money? Um, and is, is, is all that stuff making a difference? And I, I said at a speech at St. George's Park, it didn't go down very well. I said, you should basically just burn the whole thing down. This is a waste of everyone's money. Um, and I didn't mean it in, a, in an entirely negative fashion, <laughs> but, you know, if you, it, you know, in the Southern Hemisphere, we are very light on for resources. We're very light on for facilities. And yet you can find clubs that will wipe the floor with other clubs, um, even though they don't have all that stuff. Um, you know, like the Canterbury Crusaders, they've got, they've got, the Crusaders have average facilities. That's not their advantage. Their advantage is cohesion. So, when you said about two hundred and sixty percent more cohesive, what what two hundred and sixty percent of what? How have you quantified that? Well, obviously, I can't give too much away, but uh, you know, you know. So, so uh, it's not. This has got nothing to do with spirit. It's got nothing to do with culture. It's got nothing to do with. Um, how people prepare themselves. What we're looking is what is the drivers? What are the drivers of cohesion over time? And one of the biggest strengths Iceland had was a total lack of resources from a playing perspective. There was simply no one left in Iceland to play football. If you look at New Zealand when they went undefeated in 2010, that was exactly the case. There was only, you know, the different reports of the numbers available, but one of them said 20, they had 25 players to choose from. So what happens when you don't have, when, when there's no one left to pick and, and, what happens in those cases is people start to gel onto each other. They start to improve their ability to work together. So we're trying to understand what are the what are the contributors towards those drivers. And um, you know, there's a, as we've gone further and further down, there's a complexity to it. It's position specific. It's history specific. 
it's um, you know, change of, we look at the three P's, people, program, and position. Um, so people being understanding between the, the individuals. You've got position, which is the understanding of your role. So if you change roles, how long does it take to adapt? Are those roles easy to change from? Like if you change from loose head to tight head in rugby, is it harder? Whereas tight head to loose head's easier. Um, and then you've also got the program, so you've got the tactics. And so if you change tactics, then it's then the group can underperform. So you look at, say, when Man United went from Ferguson to Moyes, they changed tactics. And so the group, despite being cohesive in every other way, were uncohesive because they were now doing something they weren't used to. So there's the, these are the sort of contributing factors towards what we're trying to understand. Um, but certainly... Um, once you can actually start to understand those dynamics, then you can start to say, okay, well, are we building a team to be skillful or are we trying to just find the best talent or do we build a team to be cohesive over time? And then you're talking about the types of decisions that are made over the long term. And I think one of the really simple examples of this is when Welsh Rugby went, had nine professional clubs and they went to four. Five originally, then one went broke. Now, coaching-wise, they went from Sir Graham Henry who went backwards at his time for coaching Wales to a number of different coaches towards Hanson, but the upswing in performance that was that was really driven from at my end around how they uh, how they um, developed their game nationally, um, domestic, uh, you know, in terms of the, the domestic drivers, was actually the key to that upswing in performance. And I think you see the same with Germany too. You know. The changes that were made in Germany in the early 2000s led towards the success they had in the, in the late period of time. Is there, just going back one point and about the integration of, um, in, of of new players into a into a squad, and I can I, I guess this this probably carries over into integrating anything, whether it be new staff or you know new whatever. Is there any commonalities that you see of of how people are? Um, fed into a fed into an organisation, whether it be the top, the middle, or the or the bottom, or what, you know wherever players, staff. Uh, is there any any commonalities there that you see? Um, the te- there's themes. There's pretty common themes. What to, it it really depends on on how teams are set up. So basically, you know, if you want to talk about culture in the way people might describe it, we talk it as normative behaviours. If you get a group of people that have been together for a really long time. They develop a way of doing business. And when somebody is inserted into that environment, it's really hard for that person if they have had their own way of doing something. And so most of the time they're either rejected or told to change. And if they don't change, they can go. Um, you know, as a young player when I was at the Brumbies, um, I was told to change how I behaved or I could leave. Now, that was because the Brumbies had very, very, a higher level of cohesion, therefore higher levels of normative behaviours. This is how we do business down here. If you're not going to adapt to that, then you can, you can leave. Um, now, if what you happened? have... What happened, Ben? I changed. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> I changed and I played for Australia. And, you know, I was destroyed. You know, we had 14 players playing for Australia once. Um, and I, so I had to adapt. Now, it was easier for me to adapt because I was not previously a professional standard in anywhere else. I was only 22 years of age. Whereas if somebody else comes in and it takes them longer to undo, you know, to unlearn what they've learned, then most of the time they, they end up shifting. The other thing I think to understand is, is, is when you change clubs, is that it's much more stressful than you imagine. You know, I'm really interested in this area, but we're finding that behaviorally, um, 
uh, people are much more likely to misbehave in the first or second year after they change clubs. So it's not, it's, it's, I haven't, you know, that's only anecdotal so far because we're just watching all sorts of trades all the time. I would like to research this a lot more. Um, and I'm also interested in whether you can get more injuries, you know, in that scenario. But, uh, that, that stressful scenario is extremely difficult on players. And I think one of the things to understand is when you're, when you're, when you're given the option of, you know, staying or going is, okay, I've got, I've got a scenario here where I've, I know everybody, they understand me. Um, I'm performing to a certain level. I'm, you know, I probably feel like I'm being underpaid, but perhaps it's not just me that's making me successful. Perhaps it's the people around me. Perhaps it's my level of understanding of them that makes me successful. And so when you decide to go, you need to be able to take that into account that one, I'm going to probably underperform pretty dramatically for the first period of time. So I need to be able to overcome that. And is the organization going to have patience for that? And so we see a lot of players set up at very, very good organizations who appear to be better than they are, who leave, who then bounce around for the next five, 10 years of their career and never achieve the same heights. And I could show you thousands of examples of that happening over time. Whereas there is a chance they might have been better for them to stay. And they might have been underpaid in the short term, but long term might have been a better scenario because their value drops dramatically after that trade and after the next couple of trades. So um, the, the, one of the keys for us, if any trade of a player, is understand the dynamics. What is it you actually are going to bring to the table? What is it you can't bring with you? You know, if you change companies, knowing where the toilet is doesn't help you at the next one. You know? So. So then, <laughs> that that um, understanding what you take with you and what you can't take with you, and then understanding what you're going to be able to contribute, and then understanding these people may not like what I can contribute or understand how hard it's going to be for me, because um, you know there's a very big difference between somebody that's grown organically and the person coming in, and most of the time the person coming in is going to look look worse. The other the other thing that can actually happen, which I find quite amazing, is if you go in and you get everybody to adapt to how you do, you will perform well because now you're doing things the way you want to, but the group will underperform. And we also, also see that quite regularly. So why do, why do people exist like Harry Redknapp, uh, Sam Allardyce in the, in the football example? Uh, I'm sure there's examples out there in other sports who get drafted in when things are going tits up. What, yeah. And what what do they actually bring from a from a kind of non technical side, or is it all technical? Is it psychological? What? How do you quantify it? What, what is it? So, so I mean, one of the things I know is is that I know what I don't know. I don't know whether these guys can coach or not. I don't. I, I don't have any proof either way. But one of the things is is that these guys generally exist in an environment that's chaotic. So the championship, I think, the average manager of the last couple of years lasts somewhere between. 0.8 and 1.3 seasons, and it is the, the lowest cohesion competition in the world. So it's an environment that is that is basically chaotic and is a very, very high churn level of environment. Now, one of the things we do know is that inside those environments, you don't actually need a lot of cohesion to be effective because you don't, you know, 30% in a 20% environment is going to get you pretty good outcomes. Um, but if you, if you say, if you got those guys to come and coach in the AFL, if they were AFL type coaches, that type of performance simply isn't possible because they're just not built that way. Those competitions are not built that way. 
And so, for example, in the AFL, an expansion franchise generally will now take about seven years to be competitive. In the championship, you can throw together a team and be competitive from pretty much day 10, you know, from five games in because the whole thing is functioning in chaos. So one of the things I'd say with a guy like Sam Allardyce is maybe he keeps things really simple and and um, and doesn't make massive amounts of changes when he comes into those organisations. What I always find quite a funny is that a lot of coaches and managers have this mandate for change. I'm going to come in and fix everything. When the only constant for the organisation they're coming into is change. You know, the place... You know, you'll see some clubs that have basically never stopped changing for their entire existence. It's always been new coach, new players, new program. You know, you always see the posters, you know, we've got a new attitude, you know, we've got a new new jersey. You know, um, my brother-in-law in marketing says it's like putting lipstick on a gorilla. It's not going to fix anything. Um, <laughs> and, and so for those guys, maybe they're just a bit more stable than everyone else in an environment that doesn't have any stability. So... Um, and, and also what you can't do is you can't introduce complexity into those environments. You can't come up with this. You can't say we're going to play the Barcelona way or the Bayern Munich way because those systems are built over very, very long periods of time. And what I find extraordinary is, you know, talking to a lot of guys who are the pros and stats and they go and look at results wise, the change of manager has, you know, maybe the dead cat bounce, but in the end, they end up where they end up. Clubs will end up where they end up. The problem is the short term thinking. And the short-term drivers, which is private ownership, trying to go up, you know, trying to get a promotion. But it, but but long-term, if you look at the clubs who do it really well, the clubs who do it well take a long-term view, and that's like the top one. Look at Exeter and the Aviva Premiership. Is they do things in the right way. They're not impatient because um, because they know that over if they do things in a in a in a patient fashion. Um, then they've got a chance of staying up. There's a very big difference between you can come up from seventh division in, in these types of competitions, and money will get you all the way to second division. But the problem is, money doesn't keep you at first. I was actually listening to um, Neil Warnock, the uh, Cardiff manager, this morning on the radio, and he was talking about the championship and how, like you say, how chaotic it is. Mm. And he, he sounded like he's obviously been at, at God knows how many clubs at that kind of level. And you could just hear the excitement in his voice, how how he loved the how chaotic it was. And he's clearly just been like, he'll get sacked at some point, but he'll bounce back and he'll be still buzzing for it. Where so you can see that someone like him, you can just imagine him absolutely thriving in going into somewhere that he needs to tame. He seems that kind of guy. So yeah, really, really interesting. Yeah, the other the other point I just wanted to quickly make it is okay. One of the things we've found that's really extraordinary with players is that players who, who people never thought were going to be up to it, if, if the environment remains stable, can become pretty extraordinary. And there's, you know, there's a, a certain club that we were talking to um, recently that took some players from their academy to becoming their nationally-based players, um, you know, international level, and they said, we never thought these kids were up to it. And we tried to fire them. We tried to move them on. And then slowly over time, management said, no, hold on to these guys. You'll see what comes through. So even the coaches tried to get rid of these blokes and they stayed and then they end up becoming, you know, national players and, and world, world players. And so for me, one of the most extraordinary things is, you know, I don't think people 
are able to recognize talent in the same way. There's a lot of cognitive dissonance. You know, when people are made to hold on to players later on, they said, you know, these guys are amazing now. They're, you know, and I'm responsible for it. There's a, there's a team in the AFL in 1998 who came last and they lost three games by 500 points in total. And one of the, one of the commentators was saying, there is not a single player on the field who should be playing in the AFL. 21 of those players won three titles in a row and almost four five years later. So they went 98, they came last. 99, they came sixth. Then they went first, 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 second, um, winning the yes, AFL. Yes. And then people are saying, this is a team for the ages. They will always be God's <laughs> men. You know, it's like this is the same freaking people. Um, <laughs> but that, yeah, I, I always find that extraordinary. So cognitive dissonance takes a big, a big, uh, you know, people convince themselves later that they were responsible and that these people were always destined for greatness. Of course. So one thing I didn't mention, I don't think, on the discussion points, but over the last probably six, eight episodes, I've asked people, I've asked guests for a couple of books that have potentially influenced them the most. Do you have two that, or a couple, two, three, one, whatever it may be, that has that comes to mind? Yeah, so... Um, the Grossberg's Chasing Stars has influenced me the most. Uh, there's another one called Leading Teams, uh, who's, and the name of the author I cannot remember for the life of me, um, but I can I can get it for you actually if I just look on my phone. So if you give me uh, give me okay, two seconds, we might we might have some dead time here for a second. Uh, Richard uh, J. Richard Hackman. So J. Richard Hackman. Hackman. Yep. So so uh, Chasing Stars by Grossberg. And then leading teams by Jared. Sweet. I'll put links to them so people can have a little look and uh, get buy-in. I, I think I get think Amazon some cash. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> I, I think one of the really important things, if your listeners, listener group is, you know, is really based in that sports science area, and, and certainly that's never something we discount by any stretch of the imagination. We know that can make massive differences, particularly if you can keep people on the field. But I think one of the things is is uh, uh, slowly over time now that I coach and I talk to a lot of coaches, when people are failing, when teams are failing, they need to understand it's not necessarily them. It's not necessarily um, their con- contribution, which is creating that failure. And so a lot of people take failure very personally and a lot of people get blamed for failure. You know, like like with the championship, with coaches lasting point out of the season, a, a lot of people who are the type of clubs that are high churn clubs get fired. They just shift them on, and so I think one of the really important things over the long term is to align yourself with the type of clubs that are really really well put together. Um, and you see Charlie now at Leinster. You know, Charlie, our friend Charlie Higgins. You know, is is at a club that is extremely well put together. And if you end up doing your job well in those types of environments, guys last a very, very long time because you're removing all of the factors that create failure a lot of the time and create a misunderstanding of why organizations fail. And by the same token, just because you're winning doesn't mean you're doing your job very well. You know, there are certain clubs that can, that can be built to be successful. Um, and it's, it may not be you. And so the key, the thing to keep questioning yourself is, am I actually doing things to the best of my ability? Am I doing things that actually count and contribute towards performance? Because it's so easy to get caught up in the success and the failure over the club. And you may or may not be making a contribution towards that. 
and it's important to keep reflecting on that, I think. I like that. I like that. Definitely a good place to uh, to finish on. But Ben, Ben, where can people get to know more about Gainline and more about you? So we have a website, gainline.biz, uh, and all of our contact details are on there. Um, and just drop us an email. Um, generally, what we do with clubs is is we 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 have make presentations to them about what we understand about cohesion. And there's a lot more depth than what we've talked about here. Um, and then, uh, and the second thing we do is, is we then say, okay, we can now look at you and we can, we present studies into them and say, okay, now you can understand what are the long and short term ramifications of each decision you've made. And a lot of times the failure they're suffering is for decisions people have made before them. And the, and you've got to, you've got to be able to dig your way out in order to create success and build a dynasty over time. And then basically we then create data feeds around themselves and, and what they're up against all the time in order to be able to measure that and keep expectations at bay and then build towards success over the long term. So that's sort of our, our way of doing business. So, uh, yeah, feel free to get in touch. Sweet. Are you, uh, are you on Twitter or any social media? Yes, I, we are on Twitter. Um, and if you just, if you just look up the, uh, Gameline Analytics on Twitter, we're on LinkedIn. Um, Simon uh, Strong, our, our GM of sport. I actually do more at the corporate end, but I started out sporting. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So, so Simon does uh, far more of the social media. I'm not particularly good at it because I can't spell. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, so we're on Twitter, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Facebook. So feel free to Sweet. to like and enjoy our work. Hopefully. Perfect. Well, Ben, thank you very much for giving up your time. Absolute pleasure to chat for a second time. And uh, we'll keep in touch. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks, mate. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the chat with Ben. Firstly, big thanks to Ben for giving up his time to come on the podcast and share his experiences uh, and knowledge of the industry from various different angles. And also big thanks to Vald Performance, Forstex, and Fatigue Science for sponsoring this episode today. So if you haven't pressed subscribe on your chosen podcast player, please press subscribe. And if you are listening via iTunes, go on your iTunes app, scroll right to the bottom and give an honest rating and a review so more people can get to know about the the podcast and the fantastic guests that are featured. So thank you for tuning in to this episode and I will chat to you next week.